This morning's topic is, Paul titled this, Turning the Searchlights On. I was full of boring titles, like Jesus is the Light. And Paul puts his twist on it. I never know what it is until Sunday morning when I get here. One of these days, I may be asking for trouble. But turn the searchlights on. We've been talking about spiritual warfare and what the church is called to do. We titled this series that we're on Behind, Enemies Li- Behind Enemy Lines. For those of you who maybe just started the last couple of weeks, you may be a little worried that we're sort of preoccupied with spiritual warfare and with Satan and stuff. And we really aren't. I, I don't plan on always, you know, spending this much attention on the enemy. But the purpose of this series is to spend attention on the enemy. So for right now, we're spending some attention on the enemy. We'll get off it and get on to other things shortly. We've been talking about the weapons of our, of our spiritual warfare. We saw that one of them is the power of prayer, that God's given us the power to intervene and to do warfare with prayer. The second one we talked about last week, and that was praise. God's given us the power of praise. He's ordained, the Bible says, strength and praise against the enemy. And when we praise God, we come against strongholds and tear strongholds down. This morning we're going to talk about light. Light as spiritual warfare, or truth as spiritual warfare. Basing it on Ephesians chapter 4, the verse we read earlier, which is, Walk in the light, be children of the light. For the light makes everything visible. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're very aware that your word will fall on deaf ears and fall on hard hearts if your spirit isn't there to accompany it and to energize it. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit would really be here, even as you've been here during the worship service, Lord, be here to make your Word come alive, to take scales off of our eyes and, and take calluses off of our heart to receive from you what we need to receive. And Lord, I feel in my heart that this could really be a freeing message to a significant number of people here this morning, to all of us to some degree, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that this message would be used to set your people free, to rise up and do the warfare that you've called us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. There's two things you need to know about the enemy. Paul says in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, to not be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Be aware of them. Learn about them, in other words. There's two things we need to know about the enemy. First, is that one of the central means of defeating or trying to bring defeat into the live life of believers One of the central ways, if not the central way, is by bringing condemnations and accusations and guilt upon the believer. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, accusing them day and night, bringing accusations, memories of things done wrong, intensifying the awareness of imperfections in your life in order to deflate you, to cause you to walk, Below what God has ordained that the believer should walk in. He's the accuser. In Zechariah chapter 3, we find this vision of Zechariah where Joshua is standing before the Lord and Satan is standing right next to Joshua. And Satan is bringing accusations upon Joshua, telling him how he's filthy and how he has no right to stand before the Lord. Satan is the accuser. In fact, the word Satan means adversary. The one who's against us roams the earth as a roaring lion, seeking whom whom he may devour. And one of the central ways he does it is by bringing accusations and condemnation to the believer. A second thing we need to know about the enemy, and it's closely connected with the first, and that is this. As in the passage that we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, 
And throughout the whole New Testament, as a matter of fact, Satan is always associated with darkness. He's always associated with the absence of light. It ties in with the first point we were, we were, we were making. Satan needs darkness, or he needs secrecy. He needs concealment. He needs hiddenness in order to do his destructive work of bringing accusations against the believer. The only place that the enemy can work, this is why he's called the Prince of Darkness, is because he needs secrecy and concealment in order to be empowered, in order to bring those accusations against us. Because when things are hidden in our life, when things are concealed in our life, that always brings about destruction. Satan is called the father of lies. He's a liar. And what he does in the believer's life and in the unbeliever's life is to try to produce a lie. So that our, the way we look and the way we actually are are two very different things. So that our outside and our inside don't agree. We hide the ugly things, the disgusting things, the shameful things in darkness in order to keep a nice appearance. And see, when we do that, when we buy into that, we are giving the enemy a foothold in our life. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Be angry, but when you're angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't sin, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't sin by letting the sun go down on your anger, because that gives the enemy a foothold. When you're angry and you're upset about something, but you bite your tongue and you stuff it and you don't deal with it, you don't address it, but you just put it on the inside, you go to bed with it, you're giving the enemy a foothold. You're causing there to be darkness. You're pulling a sheet over the issue, you're putting it in darkness, and that gives the enemy a stronghold. Let me tell you about John. Let me first say this, a little footnote, that when I, when I give illustrations up here that are based on real-life instances, I am going to camouflage. Confidentiality is extremely important to me. And so I will change not only the name, but sometimes we'll change the gender. I'll change the place and the location to the point where if you think you know who I'm talking about, you can be sure that you have no idea who I'm talking about. Okay? So I, I, I do that just for that because who knows? Some of the people may be going here. So I'll call this person John and I'll call him a student of mine. John came to me and his story is this. He had a father who was a pastor, a holy man, so he thought. He, he almost worshipped his father. He just, you know, just so reverenced his father. But two years before John came and talked with me, he'd gotten a call from his father in a different state to come and bail him out of prison. His father had been arrested on obscenity charges. And he had to come and pay a post bail for him. Turns out that his father had been all of his life, all, all of John's life, and even before the time he ever married John's mother, had been a very promiscuous homosexual. He was a pastor of this church. John came and posted bail and got him out, and they, they made a kind of an arrangement of secrecy, a, a, a strategy to keep this thing quiet. Your mother must never know, the family must never know, the church must never know, and in fact, you and I will never talk about this again. It didn't exist. It's done. It's gone. This is in the past. Let's forget that this ever happened. And John, respecting his father, did that. But it wasn't too long after that that John began to develop certain problem areas in his life. He began to develop phobias, weird fears, things he never feared before. Just unexplainable fears, fear of height, fear of buildings, fear of uh, you know, claustrophobia. He, he began to, for the first time in his, life, in his life, really doubt Christianity. He had a lot of doubt because what epitomized the reality of Christianity in his life was now destroyed the image of his father, and so he began to have radical doubts about Christianity. 
he began to worry about his own sexual identity. He began to fantasize about men. And he'd ne- that never happened before. He began to dream like that and he was just getting all screwed up. And John was feeling very alienated from his father and very alienated from his family. In fact, very alienated from his friends because what was truest about him, what was deepest about him, he couldn't even communicate. There's this no-talk rule that kept the real John with all of his pain and shame on the inside so he could never deal with it, he could never process it, he could never begin to work through the issue. It was kept a big secret. And when you keep a big secret, you give the enemy a stronghold in your life to begin to bring destruction. And the, 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 the symptoms of this destruction in John's life were all these phobias and, and these areas of concern that he had. We all keep secrets. We all hide to some degree. I mean, in little ways, at least. We, uh, we say we're fine when we're not really fine. And some of that's socially understandable. You don't want to dump on everybody who says, How are you? Oh, it's a wreck. You don't want to do that. But we all, we all hide. We put our best foot forward. Our public self is a little bit different than our private self. People don't know how grumpy we really are, how, you know, how depressed we sometimes get, how we sometimes break dishes. They don't know that kind of stuff. And we have a vested interest in them not knowing that kind of stuff because if you knew that kind of stuff, you might not like me and I want you to like me. So I'm doing fine. Hallelujah. Sometimes, though, we, 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 we stuff in, in bigger ways. We stuff, like John, we stuff kind of big issues. Maybe, maybe our past. No one must ever know about our past because our past was so screwed up and it had so much pain and so much shame attached to it, we don't ever want anyone to know about our past. Or maybe it's a present issue that you struggle with. Maybe it's your thought life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your gay father. The things that you don't want anyone to know. and Maybe you don't even want yourself to know. Sometimes we hide things so well, we block them out of our mind. We block them out of our memory. We pretend like they don't exist. We just forge ahead in life and sweep everything undesirable under the rug. But see, to the degree that we do that, to the degree that we do that, we invite destruction on our life. Secrecy is poison and it kills. We give the enemy a stronghold and and it will manifest itself as sure as anything. It may come out as depression. It may come out as a phobia. It may come out as sexual identity things. It may come out as compulsiveness, it may come out as rage, it may come out as an eating disorder, I don't know, but one thing is sure, and that is that that thing that's rotting inside you is going to come out. It can't come out the way it's supposed to in dealing with the issue, so it's going to come out the back door as something very different. When it comes out, you won't even know why it's there. It's there because something in secret is rotting. There are three reasons why hiddenness destroys us, and I want to quickly run through those three reasons. The first is this. Hiddenness and secrecy destroys us because we were created to live in the truth. We were created to live like little kids, honestly. We were created to notice things and to say what we notice and to be okay with that. Little kids do this. We teach them how not to do this. Did you ever watch Funniest Home Videos? You know, at Sunday night, my favorite show. They always have kids saying things that are socially unacceptable, but they're true. The little girl on, the, on Santa Claus is laughing. You see that? She's there, you know, this little five-year-old girl, and Santa Claus, you know, uh, says, uh, Well, little girl, what do you want for Christmas? And she's just smiling, and without batting eyes, she turns around and she goes, You have real bad breath. <laughs> That's a true thing. His breath probably reeks. We're created to say true things. We notice something. We say, Wow. We notice this. We say, This is the way it is. Die, cause. We're, 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 that's what the purpose of communication is, is to reveal truth. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had nothing to hide. They walked naked. I'm not proposing to get a nudist colony or anything. 
allegorically speaking. <laughs> they, they were open with one another. They didn't have anything to hide before God or before each other. They were just real people. It was after the fall that they found that they had to hide from each other and hide from God. To the degree that we separate our outside and inside, we are not going to be healthy people. We only find peace and we only have wholeness, we only have health to the extent that our outside public self and our inside private self are in agreement with one another. That is peace. That is wholeness. That is soundness. To the degree that we hide things, we, 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 we build a gulf between our, our outside and our inside, a big, huge cavity, and to that degree we are sick and unhealthy. And there will be destructive things in our life. When we hide, we live in a way that we were never created to live. We're fish out of water. We're out of our element. We're living in an alien fashion, and that will destroy you. A second reason why hiddenness destroys us is this. When you hide pain, you internalize pain. Or when you hide shame, you internalize pain. When you don't deal with it out here, you've got to deal with it in here. You eat it, as it were. John ate the pain of the situation he was a part of, and therefore, it became part of him. Okay? It became part of him. Instead of dealing with the issue out here, with having a gay father who's a pastor, who's deceived you all of his life, instead of being an out here issue, John, in order to protect the family and protect the church and protect the father, he swallows the whole thing. And now it becomes a John issue. Now it's about him. It's no longer about his father. It's about him. And it destroys him. What happens when we internalize, when we hide, is that instead of being healthy people who deal with unhealthy situations, we become very unhealthy people who are always trying to make our situations look healthy. And that's why we're unhealthy. Instead of being okay people who sometimes do screwed up things, we become really screwed up people who are always trying to look okay. Instead of being people with a beautiful sense of self who deal with very ugly situations, when we swallow that ugliness, we become ugly people who are always trying to make our situations look beautiful. And that's the essence of destruction. It's deceit. It's a lie. It's not of God. It's of the enemy. We internalize shame. We eat shame in order to protect our image. We eat the ugliness of a situation in order to keep it, look polished, keep it looking polished. We swallow the sinfulness of our, of our world around us or maybe of our behavior. We swallow it. It becomes a part of us. In order to keep it looking healthy and holy, we swallow the destructiveness as John did. We swallow the destructiveness of the issue that is done to us or the issue that we're wrestling with or what have you. We swallow it and in the end it begins to destroy us. And that kills. When you do that, that's that poison. That's toxic. That's cyanide. Any institution, any social system that puts a premium on how things look over how things actually are is going to get people who digest poison on a regular basis. Any social system where how things ought to be is more important than how things actually are and how people appear is more important than how people, excuse me, how people really are and how, how people behave is more important than what they're, what's really going on in their heart any system like that, be it a, a workplace, be it a family, or be it a church, is going to create people who are always working to meet those expectations, but to do that, they're stuffing all the real issues in their life. When you, for example, get a church where it's just sort of understood, everyone kind of has the rule that you've got to be holy here, we're victorious here, we're conquering here, everything's got to be wonderful. Where the church becomes a house of holiness, it stops being a house of truth. 
Because now people, in order to meet that need, in order to meet that expectation, are going to swallow all of their ugly stuff. You can't process issues you're not allowed to talk about, and so you swallow it, you pretend like it's not there. And the result is that you have a church full of people who look very, very good, but on the inside are very, very sick. And the ones who suffer the most are the ministers who have to set an example of this, being the holy man of God, the righteous person. And you wonder how someone like Jimmy Swagger comes around. It's actually pretty predictable. Whatever this place is, whatever Woodland Hills turns out to be, however God's going to use it, this much is true. It's got to be a, a house of truth, not a house of holiness where everything is going to look polished and nice. We need things to look real. We'll try to model that from the pulpit. Being real. Being honest. The third reason why hiddenness destroys us is this. When your issues are concealed... When they're hidden, they can never be healed. Have you ever seen bed sores? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got some cringes. Some of you, yeah. I worked in a nursing home. I was an orderly in a nursing home. One of the toughest jobs I've ever had. And uh, some of the people who were bedridden in the nursing home would develop bed sores. And it comes from, you know, if, if they were, if they were invalids, they lay in the bed all the time and they develop these, it started as a little tiny sore, but because the sore never got out in the open, because it never could get air, because they're always laying on it, it got worse and worse and worse. It gets pussy and oozy and infected and deep. And I, I, Don't be shut up! We get the point. I think it go all the way to the bone. It is the most disgusting thing. And it's one of the most painful things that you can have. It's because the wound is concealed and therefore can't be healed. When we hide, when we live in pretense for the sake of preserving a religious image, we create in our inner beings spiritual bed sores. And since the pain of these bed sores can't come out from under the blankets and be dealt with in an honest way, the pain comes out in other ways, like the phobias or depression or eating disorders or rage or, or what have you. And they rot. They rot. They get worse and worse and worse. And then we try to compensate for that by looking better and better and better, which means we hide more and more, which means that the issues get worse and worse and worse. It's a vicious cycle. And it's not of God. You know... The main problem with having a homosexual father who's promiscuous and a pastor, the main problem isn't the fact that you have a father who's homosexual and promiscuous. In a fallen, screwed-up world, people are going to wrestle with that sort of thing. It's kind of expected. The real problem there is when you don't confront it, when you don't face it, when you try to hide it, because that's what brings destruction. You can deal with the fact that your father's gay. It's a tough one. It's going to be a long road to healing. It's maybe a real tough thing for you to grapple with. But you can do it as long as you don't hide it and conceal it and keep it in secrecy. That's where you give the enemy a foothold and a stronghold to begin to work real destruction in your life. The real problem with having a bad marriage, with having a lot of problems in your marriage, isn't the fact that your marriage has problems. In a fallen, screwed-up world, marriages are going to have problems. Sometimes they're going to have real severe problems. Sometimes they're not even going to be able to survive. In a screwed-up world, that happens. We can deal with it. There's hope for you. There's healing for you going through that. That's going to happen in this, in this world. But the real problem is when we pretend like we don't have it, when we refuse to acknowledge it, either before our spouse or before friends or with a counselor or what have you, when we just stuff it and pretend like it's not there, for the sake of keeping a nice image or because it's too scary to look at, that is what's destructive. That's what brings strongholds into our life. And that's when we need the light to be turned on. The Bible has a real simple solution for this. The Bible has a real simple but very profound solution. The Bible says this. If you want to be free from darkness, you want to come against darkness, you want to rid your life of darkness, 
turn on the light. The way to get rid of darkness is by turning on the light. Darkness cannot be around when there is light. So the Lord tells us to walk in the light. Why? Because when you walk in the light, the light makes everything visible. That means that everything can be addressed and everything can be healed. This is a theme that runs throughout the entire New Testament. Paul says, put off all falsehood, put off all pretense, and speak the truth to one another in love. He says that in 4.25, Ephesians 4.25. Speak the truth to one another in love. The word truth in Greek is aletheia, which means unhiddenness. Aletheia, openness. Speak openly. Speak honestly. It's the same thing that James means when he, when he says, uh, confess your sins to one another. Because if you're talking honestly, you're going to know about each other's issues, each other's sins. The Bible says walk in the Holy Spirit. Live in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Aletheia. The Spirit of Unhiddenness. Christians are called to walk in the light. To walk unhiddenly. What John needed to do and I, you know, this is a sensitive issue and it would have to be nuanced in a certain way and we'd have to be tactful here and I'm not trying to bulldoze over the situation. But in one way or another, what John needed to do was to turn the light on and say, Dad, I can't be a part of this scheme. I'm not going to be an enabler for you to go on living this lifestyle. I'm not going to be codependent upon you. I'm going to turn the light on so we can do this. I'm going to speak the truth in love, not to destroy you, but to provide healing for you and healing for me and healing for the family and healing for the church because when someone is stuffing stuff, it's going to pollute the whole atmosphere. He needed to turn the light on and confront it. It would have been ugly. It would have been painful. It would have... It would have been, it caused a lot of friction. It maybe initially would have been destructive. I can't guarantee that the Father would have received this. I can't guarantee that the church would have been willing to work with the Father. I don't know the ramifications. There might have been a lot of pain. Truth is like that sometimes because reality is like that. But I do know this. However painful it would have been, not doing it is far more painful. Scott Peck says you got a choice. You can either face the pain of truth which is a healthy pain, or you face the pain of not telling the truth, which is a lifelong pain and will ultimately destroy you. It says that in the book, The Road Less Traveled. He needs to turn on. Now, here's the problem, though. The problem is that John, like us, we have a vested interest in deceit. Let's be honest here. We have a vested interest to some degree in keeping things looking a certain way, and that way doesn't conform to reality. John had a sense, as we do, that to some degree our worth, our value as people, our self-esteem, hangs upon the degree to which we keep things looking nice. We keep things looking, you know, polished. This is the enemy, as a matter, this is, as a matter of fact, the lie that the enemy told in the Garden of Eden, and it's the most fundamental lie that the enemy's told throughout history, and it is the lie that enables him to bring darkness into our life. The lie is this. Our worth and our value to some degree hangs upon what's out here how polished it is, how much we can acquire, what we can get. This is the lie that drives the American dream where people are always trying to get more things and look better and get a better house, a better car, a better job, more money, more recognition, more fame, or what have you. It's a lie that somehow this is where their value is. It's the same lie that drives a lot of evangelicalism where you think that what your job is is to look really holy before God and holy before other people and you know the Bible memory verses and you, and you talk a certain talk and you do all these sorts of things and see, as long as we believe that lie, we can't risk dealing with these issues. If what's really crucial to me is that you like me, if my life hangs upon you liking me, then how can I possibly tell you true things 
that you might not like. I can't risk it. It's too much. And see, then the enemy uses that stronghold of deception to cause us to hide things, and he uses that hiddenness to destroy us and eat us alive. So the question comes to be this. How do we confront that deception? How do we confront the deception that our worth hangs out here, that our worth is in our appearance, that our value is in what people think about us, or how nice my family is, how healthy my father is, how good my marriage is? How do we confront that? Let me close by telling you two very simple but profound, scripturally profound things. The way I'm going to say it won't be profound, but they're profound in Scripture. We need to get it. And both of them have to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me read a passage for you. Please listen to this passage very carefully. Don't, don't, don't even read along with me. Just hear it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to bring out two things here that if we get, if we keep in front of our face, are going to free us from this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, when you were, you were dead in your sins and the unregenerateness of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Now, how did He do that? He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. Everything that was against us, He took away. And what did He do with it? He took it away and nailed it to the cross. Now listen to this. I love this verse. And having disarmed the, principi- the powers and authorities, these demonic things, he disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them or a mockery of them, triumphant, triumphing over them through the cross. Two things I want us to get from this passage. Jesus, help me to say this as clear and as straight and as succinct as I possibly can, Lord God. Really anoint this, Lord. God, make it come alive to us because we need to hear this. Two things. The first is this. On the cross of Jesus Christ, what is worst about us? is exposed. What is worst about us is exposed and made public on the cross of Calvary. We were, the Bible says, dead in our sins. And because I was dead in my sin, Jesus Christ had to die for my sin. And when He died for my sin, He took all my sin upon Him. You may not know a lot about me. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you don't know me personally, but there's one thing you do know about me. And it's the worst thing you could ever know about me. And that is this, that my sin was so disgusting, so deep, so profound, and so severe that it required God Almighty to become a man and die for me on the cross. That's how bad off I was. That's what a loser I was. I was dead in sin. You know that about me. For all intents and purposes, you know this about me, and I know this about you. We are Christ killers. Don't you feel good about yourself? Do I say this to make us feel lousy and miserable, what worms we are, how loathsome we are? No. This is the most freeing thing in the world. This is the most freeing thing in the world. Have you ever been, you know, doing something wrong and, and you're keeping something a secret and you finally got caught and there's a sense of freedom? Like, okay, now I don't have to hide it anymore? What this means is this. If the worst thing about me is exposed, what need do I have to hide anything from you? You know what is worse. It'd be like this. Let's say that this, this morning, in the front page of the Pioneer Press and the Star Tribune and the New York Times, it said, Greg Boyd murders President Bush. Pretty bad stuff. Not, not, not very becoming of a minister. 
Now, if you knew that about me, that I was a presidential assassin, if you knew that about me, do you think I would have very much to lose by telling you that, you know what, I stole the gun I shot him with? And what's really terrible is I lied to the guard to get into the building that I could shoot from. Now, that was really terrible. And, uh, you know, I even snickered when I did it. Okay, you see, once you know that I killed the president, how I killed him is not nearly so important. The little menial sins I did along the way. Now I can deal with my problem of lying to guards, and I can deal with my problem with stealing, because you already know what is worst about me. And so it is with this. If I know this about you, and you know this about me, that we, our sin, put Christ on the cross, what could we possibly say to one another that would shock us? I already know that you're a Christ killer. You know that I'm a Christ killer. Look it. If I did it with my heterosexual sin or if I did it with my homosexual sin, what difference does it make? We did it. We're both losers like that. We're both dead in our sins and we're both redeemed by His grace. Whether it's my stealing or my compulsiveness or my rage or my insensitivity or my inability to pray, whatever sin it is, however great or however small, it's kind of inconsequential once you know the overall effect that it has. It put Christ on the cross. And this is free. This is free. You know this about me, folks. You know that I am a, I'm dead in sin. So are you going to be shocked if I do anything a little bit off color? I hope not. How could you when you know this about me? Jesus Christ exposes what is worst about us on the cross of Calvary. That frees us to start being out loud. But there's a second point we need to get. In exposing what is worst about us, Jesus Christ cancels what is worst about us. He exposes what is worst about us and then He shows us that it is utterly, utterly irrelevant about our worth. It has nothing to do with our worth. It has nothing to do with our value. Get this, folks, because this is where it's at. Jesus Christ, the verse says, on the cross of Calvary, I feel like I'm going to explode here. On the cross of Calvary, He took all the things that were against us. Every rule we ever broke, every rule we, we could have broken, every evil thought that we thought, every evil deed we did, every good deed we didn't do, every good deed we did with wrong motives, all the things that were against us, all that could separate us from God, all that railed against God, all that made us an enemy of God, all that would have sent us to hell, everything past and everything present and everything future, he took upon Himself, and the Bible says He nailed it to the cross. He took it away from the enemy. The enemy had it. You see, the enemy had it. And, and He used that against us. And He would have done so eternally if Jesus hadn't intervened. But the Bible says He took it from the enemy, and He nailed it to the cross, and He cancels what, what was written uh, against us. He forgave us our sins, the Scripture did. We were, we were, the Scripture says we were dead, but He made us alive. And now the Bible says that we stand before God pure. Praise God. We stand before God spotless. We stand before God redeemed. We stand before God sanctified. We stand before God holy. In fact, the Bible says this, that we stand before the Father exactly where Jesus stands before the Father. You can't get any better than that. All that was written against us, He canceled. As far as the east is from the west, He scattered our sins from us. And then the Bible says this. And in doing that, he made an open mockery of Satan and triumphed 
over Him on the cross. Because this is what He did, and this is what we got to get. If we're going to use this in spiritual warfare and turn on the light, turn on the light and walk in the light and come against darkness. He took everything that the enemy ever had against us, everything the enemy could use, and he took it away from him. The Scripture says He disarmed. He disarmed Satan. The enemy has got nothing on us anymore. Can you say amen? He's got nothing on us anymore. He is a lion without teeth. He's a warrior without a gun. He's got nothing to use against us because everything he could ever use against us to bring destruction and to bring hiddenness into our life, it's already been made known for one thing. So it's no longer secret. It's already been canceled out, so now it's irrelevant. What has he got on us anymore? Now, Paul says that, that, that Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan. The word there is, was used in, in, Roman, in, 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 in Roman culture in this way. When, a, when an army would conquer another army, what they would do is they, they'd kill most of them, but they'd take some prisoners. And then they'd bring them into town, and sometimes they'd dress them up in funny masks, they'd strip them of all their clothes, and they'd bring them through the town. And the people of the victorious town would laugh at them and spit on them and jeer them and have a party with them. Okay, now that's a little inhumane, that's a little bit gross, but you know what? See, the people would make a mockery, a public spectacle of the enemy that they defeated. I don't like hearing about that with human beings, but when I hear about it with Satan, I like that. Jesus Christ now makes Satan this, this public spectacle. He's to be mocked. He's got no power, he's got no authority, because everything he ever had against us is now gone. And we stand... <laughs> We stand before the Lord pure and spotless and there's nothing He can say against us. I talked to a lady here uh, several weeks ago and she said this, and this is a thought that a lot of Christians have but we hardly ever say it out loud. I don't feel like I belong in church. I just feel like everyone else is kind of holy and I'm not. I keep on getting these thoughts and this is right of the enemy. I get these thoughts that, you know, other people pray but I don't pray. And other people read their Bible a lot but I hardly ever read my Bible and, and I hardly ever talk about the Lord and I really don't have a good witness and I've got a lot of addictions in my life. She was a believer, but she had a lot of struggles as a believer. But the enemy was trying to say, hey, don't bother coming to church, you hypocrite. That little voice, you hypocrite? How dare you associate with these people? They're holy and you are a piece of worm. What this lady needs to know is this. When you hear those voices, when you hear that, there's only two things that are important. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to say, I'm not that bad. Just admit it all. Say, look it. I know that I don't read my Bible enough. I know I don't pray enough. I know I don't fast enough. I know I don't witness enough. I know that if I had to do it on my own, I'd be a lost cause. I know that I'm dead in sin. I know that all the sin of the world, I mean, I helped put Christ on the cross. So, Satan, you are boring me because you're not telling me a thing I don't already know. <laughs> Amen. It's all been done. Tell me something I don't know yet. But there isn't anything because the worst thing's already been told. But then you say this. You're boring me, but you know what? Everything you're saying, <laughs> it's true on one level, but you know what? It's utterly irrelevant. It doesn't, in terms of what I'm worth, in terms of my value, in terms of my life before God, in terms of what I mean to God, everything that you just said, I've already said, and it's utterly irrelevant. It's utterly inconsequential because Jesus took it upon Himself on the cross, and now I stand before God in the midst of my sin, holy and pure and spotless. It doesn't have anything to do with, with how good and right I am. Amen. Thank God it doesn't have anything to do with how well I measure up or how well I don't measure up because everything that was written against me has been canceled out. It's been canceled out. 
Some of us sit here in, in service and, and, and you think to yourself, you know, I'm the only one who's got a homosexual father who's a pastor. And that may be a true thing. I'm the only one who's got the problems in the marriage that I've got. I'm the only one who's got the problems raising kids that I have. I bet I'm the only one in this congregation who smokes. Or I'm the only one in this congregation with an alcohol problem. Or I bet I'm the only one in this congregation who, who hardly ever, ever, ever prays. Or it goes on and on and on. So you feel isolated. You feel alienated. You stuff that you hide it. And all this other stuff comes out of your life. Bosh with it. Bosh! Not the gospel. And Jesus Christ, of course, of course you have things like that. That's what church is for. This is where you need to be. This is a place for sinners and hypocrites and, and, and the rest of us. How else do you think I could ever preach from this pulpit? Yes, we're in the process of being transformed and redeemed and set on fire and all that other stuff. But when all is said and done, we're Christ killers who are saved by grace. And knowing that and experiencing it is what begins to lead us out into becoming living lives that are like Christ lovers instead of Christ killers. Speak the truth to one another in love. We've been freed. We've been exposed. And we've been forgiven. So that means we're free to deal with issues. What that means for you, I don't know. Maybe it means just being honest with your spouse, your husband, or your wife. Start saying true things. Start confronting things you've been afraid of. See them. Feel the health that comes with it. Talk out loud with your children. Maybe it means communicating more honestly with your friends. What it means for this as a church is that from the pulpit here, Paul and I and whoever else is, is, is going to be a part of this ministry is committed to honesty and openness. Never trying to present an air of holiness that isn't a real thing. It's just being real because we're forgiven sinners like you, like everyone else who will ever come through this door. The other thing is that we want to develop groups where it's safe to be out loud about stuff. No one's going to pull teeth and say, tell me your secrets. You're supposed to tell me your secrets. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. But to have a safe context where people can just be themselves. You know what I hate, I detest, I really despise is when we act different in church than we act outside of church. Or when we are different around Christians than we are around non-Christians. It's like, huh? No. This is a place where it just can be us. Where we can develop groups where we can have a safe context to share, to talk, to, to, to have fun together, to, to pray together, to be honest with one another. We'll be hearing about this next week. But one of the core things of this church will be small groups, fellowship groups. We come together on Sunday morning to celebrate, but we need to have times where we cohere together in small groups and bond and experience unconditional love with one another. As I close, I want to just say this. Maybe this morning you need to start being real about something in your life. And there'll be people up here who would love to pray with you about that. Uh, please come forward as we're dismissed uh, and, and receive what you need from the Lord. Start speaking the truth, and that's the first step to being healthy and whole. Can we stand and close? Father, I thank you, Lord, for the Spirit of God which is here this morning and which has infused the worship and has infused the Word, God. And I thank you for the way it's been received, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just begin to free your people, free your people, Lord God, to set aside all the, uh, all the shackles, the scales of pretense and, and, and falseness that, that we sometimes display for one another, Lord. Help us to be a real people. You love us as we are, and so, Lord, we can love one another as, as we are. Let that love characterize us as we go forth from this place. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't yet accepted you as as, as as Savior, and is therefore not accepted what we talked about this morning, I pray that you convict them right this minute and put in their heart to come forward and receive you. And for others, Lord, who maybe need to air some of the darkness, I pray that they'd come forward and receive prayer as well. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.